Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we had Brian Liebel and Ruskin Hartley from the IES and IDA, respectively. That's the International Dark Sky Association, son, if you're listening to this. And this was a good one, man. The street met the ivory tower. We talked about trade-offs, Greg. We, what else did we talk about? Holy mackerel. Talked about light pollution. We talked about, yeah, just, you know, the principles that we need to consider when we're looking at exterior lighting. Yeah, man, we got to teach those five principles in the upcoming Nailed course that's coming out hot soon, man. Those five principles are going to be taught. So, but before we get into this wonderful conversation, what an honor it was for us, um, we got to talk about Keystone Technologies. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com, KeystoneTech.com. Big news coming out of Keystone. Hey, Light Made Easy is their, their motto, their theme, right? They are now making exterior lighting easy. They're coming out with a line of exterior fixtures. They're gonna, and what I mean by easy is they're gonna reduce the number of skews you need because they're gonna make them color selectable. Get out of here on a number of them. Oh yeah, three, four, and five K. We're talking about the Kelvins in this podcast today, and then also um, they're gonna have different wattages, lumen packages, everything you need: floods, wall packs, area lights, all the good common stuff that's out there. You can now get at Keystone. Coming soon, I should say, versus now. But by the time you hear this, it'll be just about now that you can buy that thing. You know what the good news is about that is you can put up that 5,000K nasty that the guy wants and then go back to him and say, dude, can I just really adjust these to Mm 3,000? Because, you know, it's kind of nasty, that 5,000K at night. You don't really need it. And look, you know, I'm going to turn the back on to 3,000K and you tell me if you can see any less. That's right. You got the guy set up right. Yeah, and the best part about it all is if there ever is an issue, and I deal with exterior lighting issues a lot, as I'm sure a lot of distributors do when you put an LED fixture in. Good luck finding that driver. With Keystone, you'd know the driver. Oh, It's a Keystone driver. It's come easy. on, man. So you got to go to KeystoneTech.com. Just go there right now. K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Maybe that's KeystoneTech.com. The kings of outdoor lighting now, Greg. <laughs> They're coming in hot. <laughs> and, of course... The National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Go to NAILD.org. Keystone's a proud member. Oh, baby. Get a grip on lighting.com. Welcome to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Brian Liebel and Ruskin Hartley. Hello. Good afternoon. Good morning. Hey. So Greg is going to start us off here. He has some questions, I think, for Ruskin first. Isn't that right, Greg? That's right. Well, first of all, happy Earth Day. I think that's today, right? Yeah, that is, that is today. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Greg. Yeah, so when, we, uh, when, when this will actually be released, it'll be sometime in May, but right now it's April 22nd, so Earth Day. We're yeah. celebrating. Yeah. Uh, wanted to talk just a little bit about International Dark Sky Association. Yeah. So Ruskin, I'm guessing you're going to help us out on that. So yeah. what is your role there right now? So uh, I joined last year as the executive director. So I report to the board and oversee the see the staff and really driving our initiatives forward. And, and what is, what year did the International Dark Sky Association start? We were founded just over thirty years ago um, by an amateur astronomer and a professional astronomer here in Tucson, uh, Arizona. And from those small roots, we've now grown into an organization with members and supporters in every continent. And what made them start it? I can guess, but share the story. Well, the story I, I've hold, heard is Tim Hunter was an amateur astronomer, and he also happened to be uh, he was a physician. And he heard that the uh, hospital that he was working with was going to put up some pretty horrendous lighting. 
and the lighting was going to impair his ability to use a telescope from his backyard. So he went and told them, said, can we do something about this? They said, no, not really. So he, he looked up to the hills above the mountains above Tucson, which, as you might know, has a kind of world-class astronomy research center. And he went up to Kitt Peak and met with Dave Crawford. And, and Dave Crawford was, the, was uh, the manager of Kitt Peak, and they talked further about what could be done for this. And I think initially... The story I've heard from the from the professional astronomy community, they really weren't concerned about light pollution at that point because of the technology it used. They could kind of filter out those old uh, single band elements. Um, but in conversation, they, they realized that there was something here. Um, and given the growth of Tucson, the growth of light pollution, they came together to decide to do something about it uh, and, you, and advocate for simple changes. Yeah, you, you probably don't know the answer, but I've got to wonder as a lighting dork in 1990, what possibly could it have been that was... Uh, horrendous big metal halide uh, lights i wonder probably metal halide you know I, I i'll have to reach out to tim and yeah. ask with the specifics but i think it was more it was more they were going to light the, you know the classic thing they're going to light you know make light up the hospital make it look beautiful point the lights up into the sky rather than keeping them down on the ground i think yeah. it was something as simple as that yeah and what is your primary purpose our purpose is pretty simple we're all about protecting the night from light pollution while we started um, from the, we have roots in the astronomical community. We still um, have a lot of support and do a lot of work with them. We, we have much a much broader range of constituents now, and it's great, in fact, to be talking to you on Earth Day because many of the people who support this work support this work because they're concerned about the impact that uh, excessive light at night has on on wildlife. And, and, and nocturnal species. In fact, you know, Earth Day, half of Earth Day is night, right? <laughs> and That's artificial right. light at night is, by definition, artificial in terms of the electrical light. And it's a novel environment for many of these creatures. Very good. And then, and then it brings us here to Brian and the IES. And this is uh, an exciting topic that I saw come across that you guys recently announced a partnership or collaboration. Can you kind of give us what that's all about, Brian? Sure. Well, first of all, I think that... Um, the IDA and the IES share a lot of members in common. Uh, you know, the IES membership is uh, almost 8,000 strong, and uh, many of our members are Dark Sky, International Dark Sky members as well. And so we have a lot in common uh, in terms of what we do with our standards and our standards development and the members of our society wanting to uh, respect the dark sky and encourage dark sky uh, lighting design. So um, having uh, us get together is a natural collaboration. We're very happy that we're able to do this and uh, work together on ways in which we can promote good lighting design that also uh, reduces night pollution or light pollution at night. So, so you guys came up with, is it five principles or yeah, five principles for responsible outdoor lighting? Can you share those with us? Be happy to, and then chime in, Brian. I mean, it's it's yeah. pretty simple. It kind of makes sense. And, and the more when I started talking about this with with Brian, is one of the things we realized is certainly from our side, many of our members they never get to see quality lighting. Our exposure is often to to poor lighting and poorly thought through lighting. So we thought we need to put some really simple principles that anyone could could understand and could be applied at any scale, be that a homeowner or be that a municipality or a nation. And, and it's really, you know, that there are five. And the first is, is it useful? You know, what's the purpose for the light? If there's a purpose for the light, then follow these other principles. And then you're really about into, into, into reducing light pollution there. So target it, point it down. Don't point it up in the sky. Uh, clearly aim it to where it's needed. Um, one of the things we notice is there's chronic overlighting of our world. 
uh, overlighting actually causes our pupils to shut down and doesn't increase our safety. So we encourage people to use the lowest light levels possible. And, and Brian can talk more about the work IES is doing to really understand what are appropriate levels. Um, the fourth is really about controlling it. Um, your um, light that you have on that you want when you come home so you can get in safely into your house doesn't have to be on 24-7. So we encourage people to think about putting them on controllers, either motion controllers or dimmers. Uh, and the fifth is really about the color temperatures, about managing the spectrum. Uh, and really a preference, particularly from a perspective of wildlife health and also our ability to, to see the skies and the, and the cosmos is really have a preference for the warmer, warmest color lights possible. Yeah, so I can chime in on this too. In terms of developing these things, um, we really did take an, uh, a lot of thought. And really, this is where I think our organizations in terms of our, our membership coalesced really well. Um, you know, the, the idea of focusing light where it's needed and when it's needed, it's, it just comes down to that simple concept, right? And to be environmentally conscious, socially conscious about how we use the light in a more designed way. Um, you know, you can think of light pollution in many different ways, but at the end of the day, it's wasted light if you don't follow these principles too. It's not helping anybody. And so if we do this, we also gain the advantages of better energy efficiency and better utilization of the this asset that we're you know spending a lot of money on. So at the end of the day, it, it's uh, environmentally conscious, it's social conscious, it saves money, it's the right thing to do. Ruskin, so I felt like with the uh, IDA and the lighting, the broader lighting community, um, the lighting, lighting community, the broader lighting community, that there was some resistance to dark sky compliance in the beginning with your mandate from the lighting industry. And that the lighting industry is very diverse. So you have distributors, contractors, um, manufacturers, and um, somewhat resistant. Now, I don't want to go into that because we're obviously when the IES and the IDA are married together, you're talking to the number one lighting organization in the world that then dictates down to the distributors, which is our association and the contractors and all this sort of stuff. But is it time to bring the EPA into the conversation? Because you mentioned waste. Is light pollution, that word has commonly been used as more of a metaphor rather than an actuality, right? But is wasted light at night hazardous waste? That's a great question. I mean, I'll just address a couple of things in kind of your lead up and your preamble. I would say that we haven't exactly seen resistance from the industry. I mean, it's obviously a broad, diverse industry. It's big and it, it's it's um, global. And also, I've only been involved in this about a year. Um, so take this to what it's worth. But we haven't really seen resistance. We see a lot of um, the industry coming to us and say, look, we want to produce and develop products that put light where it's needed and follow these practices. In fact, you know, we, we continue to have lots of manufacturers sign up for a fixture seal of approval program, which is really an accredit independent accreditation that they're following these principles. We're still seeing those come through. We had a couple come through yesterday, in fact. So we're not really we're not seeing resistance from the industry. I, I would say where the area that we have the largest challenge is just the, the lack of awareness in the public of what the difference between good and bad light. You know, too many people, particularly on a residential use, is choose a light for what it looks like during the day as opposed to how it performs at night. And so that's why we're excited to join part, join with IES to sort of educate both the public and the designers and the architects and the engineers about how you can use quality light 
uh, to reduce and minimize light pollution. Now, in terms of your second thing, is is light pollution a pollutant? I, I, certainly, we would argue that in many instances, light is a pollutant. Um, well, actually, what's being polluted, polluted is natural darkness. It's being polluted by excessive light. Um, and it should be up there in the same breath as we think about air pollution and, and, and water pollution. I would say that we're not there yet. You know, air and water pollution have been regulated for, for, for decades here uh, in the U.S. and around the world. Now, we, we are starting to see some countries have start to recognize light as a form of pollutant as well. In fact, Mexico did that recently, and there'll be an Antarctic regulations at the national and municipal level. But again, we, we believe that we, we need both a sort of a, a top-down approach, but also a bottoms-up approach. Um, we would love to see over, t over time municipalities adopt these um, principles into ordinances at, at the state and national level, but we're not going to wait for that. <laughs> um, hmm. So we really want to encourage people from the bottom up to say, yeah, we want to take this and do it. We don't have to wait for government here. We, we can do this ourselves. And in fact, the more people that will adopt these principles, the more people will become to understand that using light responsibly actually improves the environment, both for, for wildlife, but also for people. So you're speaking to two guys that are lighting distributors. So we sell light lighting products to the end user directly. And um, while we consistently encourage our people to sell dark sky compliant fixtures even a 15 or 20 dollar adder to a project per unit say is enough to get your quote rejected by the client is enough for a contractor to go to the other distributor who isn't pushing dark sky compliant wall packs say and so greg i, I ask you a question maybe it's a little bit embarrassing but how much of your outdoor lighting that you've sold in the last five years has been dark sky compliant would you give us a rough percentage of what you think it would be maybe 30 percent. yeah something like 30 20 percent. and we're talking about a situation where a vast majority of the outdoor lighting fixtures have changed and so what i would say is that you can only rely on education and awareness so much at some point you need regulation at some point you need beyond municipalities you need an epa you need environment canada you need the eu the eu is the standards gold of the world you need the eu to dictate and say no no more glare bombs no more 5000k um i mean the vast majority if you ask a consumer what color outdoor lighting they want they're going to tell you 5000k every single time the whiter the better now I deal with I deal with end users all the time. I'm like, no, no, no. What you really want is 2,700k or even lower than that because it protects wildlife and it's better and da 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 da. And there's no difference in color rendering and visual acuity uh, when, it, when you're using LEDs. No, nope, they still want 5,000k. So I think if if we're going to accomplish this as an industry, I think the IES ha the, the 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 pairing of the IES with five simple principles is amazing. But I think we also need to involve the EPA. And we need that we need to involve Environment Canada, and we need them to say no, it's against the law now. Um, and then you would see the the vast majority of distributors and contractors be forced to change. And I think that's what has to happen. Otherwise, you're going to continually get the kind of numbers. And Greg Eric's the co-host of the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast, and he can only achieve a thirty percent rate. I would say mine's even less, um, simply because of that cost adder, and that the the contractors are just going to buy that cheap wall pack. Um, that's one point. The second point is that there's um, there's a uh, a bias towards 
with consumers, people that are not knowledgeable in something looking the same as it did before. So if you have the installed base and you have a Cobra head or you have a wall pack, people are kind of afraid to change that. And they want the new fixture, whether it's LED, to be exactly the same as a wall pack was before or exactly the same as the fixture was before. And so in order to overcome the, that bias, you need regulation again. So how do you guys have a strategy for that? And if so, um, what is it? That to IES or to IDA? <laughs> IDA. I think, I think it's both. I mean, Brian, if you want to tell, I mean, I think the IES is probably better positioned in a sense to well, dictate to the lighting industry and, and to get the EPA on board. Well, yeah, I can certainly address from our perspective on this stuff. Uh, it's interesting um, the perspective that you have about, as an example, the 5000K being the preferred light source, because I think that preference is all over the map, depending on where you're from and who you've listened to and what you've read, et cetera, sure. et cetera. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that is one aspect of it. But I think that, um, you know, what we do as a standards development organization is that uh, with uh, 50 or so committees and uh, almost 100 standards that we have, the way in which we look at this is, is as these things have developed, our standards have uh, incrementally been adding different aspects of this all along um, in terms of light trespass and um, sky uh, light pollution. We now have the Sky Glow Calculations Committee and actually about five different committees uh, dealing with this aspect at different levels in the new standards in the library when we release it in August is going to have even more. So um, I think that this is a bit of first developing the base and the science behind what we then project in the standards, which builds the awareness. So the question is, are we there yet? You know, um, mm. is this something that we are that we can take and say this is something that we can and should regulate? Are we there yet? Um, you know, I leave a lot of this up to the expertise in our com in our committees to develop these standards. And once they're there, then they can be advocated as, as such. Um, and certainly we know that uh, lighting uh, up into the sky and not controlling it and the light trespass, I think that there's certainly there. That's why we had started the model lighting ordinance you know, 10 years ago. And we want to update that now with the IDA and put that into place. Um, Will that become uh, a nationalized effort? I don't know yet. I think that's something that we probably will work at, but we haven't set a strategy yet. Uh, we are working as an example. We'll be working with other organizations like the National Park Service, as an example, mm. to, to do things sure. to help in those kinds of environments um, because that's the sensitive environments and they have expertise in wildlife and how light at night affects them, et cetera. And, you know, we're, we are looking at a broad a broad um, platform of things that we can work on together to address this issue. But straight answer, no, we haven't talked about the EPA yet or regulation. Um, I'm not sure that we're there yet. It's my answer. And Ruskin, feel free. Well, certainly from, from IDA's perspective, I mean, for 30 years, we've worked with cities and municipalities and governments around the world to help them adopt smart lighting policy. That's, that's, we believe that's an essential tool. Uh, for this. Now, then you can have a long discussion about the enforcement aspect of this. Now, it becomes really interesting whether a policy is actually enacted on the ground unless there's broad-based support. So we believe we need both. I mean, policies tend to, you know, they will, if they're supported by the public, 
they're more likely to be successful here. And I, I think what we have here, and, and we'd certainly welcome the NILD to come on board, you know, to the extent that Congress uh, starts taking up um, things that aren't related to the current pandemic, it would be great to go and sit down to them and talk to them about opportunities um, as they invest in infrastructure to do that in a way that actually saves money and saves the environment and creates a beautiful place. You know, if the industry and uh, an advocacy group and a manufacturer came together and talked to the members of Congress about why this should happen, they, they, their chances of success suddenly go up. Um, and that's just talking about clearly about the US. Now, the, with the areas of the world where we're seeing the greatest growth in, in light pollution aren't inside the US and inside Europe, in the sense we've developed. Um, light is clearly growing. It tends to be tracking matter around population growth in some instances. It, it's other parts of the world that are developing rapidly, um, but we're seeing an, a rapid increase in light pollution. In, in some instances, countries might be seeing a, a growth of intensity and in, in, in area of 10% per year. So it's like, you know, how do we also um, tackle that? And I think that's also a question for the overall industry is like, I, you know, the, the product that you can't sell in the U.S., you're just going to go and dump it in another country now. And, and we hope not. We hope that um, as countries like Africa, you no know, continents like Africa start to electrify and, and bring light to people at night, which is really critical mm -hmm. uh, part of the economy as those countries continue to develop and the ability of you know, kids just to do their homework. Uh, in the evening, you know, we would like them to learn from the path that we've been on and maybe skip over some of the missteps that we've had. Hmm. How do you measure light pollution? You ask really good experts like people on the <laughs> IES Skyboat Committee. No, it, it's actually a really interesting question. And, and the, the short answer is there's no perfect way of doing it. There are basically two methods that are used. Uh, one is you have a satellite that flies around the world, the, the Vir satellite, and it takes this, you see in the classic images of the Earth at night. Interestingly, uh, that satellite, I believe the, the lowest, um, the shortest wavelength it measures is about 500 nanometer. So a lot mm -hmm. of the new LEDs that have been converted over are essentially are not seen. Uh, by that satellite from space. So there's a big hole in that sense. Yeah, Dr. Chris Kiba told us that. He said that yeah. you, they can't see the 5,000K light. Yeah, that's, yeah satellite. So that's why people like Chris Kiber and others are Kyber, yeah. um, actually using um, the, you know, the, uh, the, satellite, the uh, astronauts in their spare time on the ISS have been taking photos out the window. And there's a crowdsourced project to, for people to identify those cities and say, hey, that's, you know, that's Berlin or that's that's Miami, and, and then they can pick up the color on that and start to add that element. So, so that's looking down um, from the space on Earth. And then there's also the, the um, measurements of sky glow from the Earth looking up, <laughs> looking up in, into space and measuring um, the sort of natural variation in, in the night sky. And then the, the component that is the electric light, the artificial electric light. And then people like um, Fabio Fauci, in Italy, when they put out the New World Atlas in 2016, what they essentially did is they were calibrating across that so that you could have a predictive model around the whole Earth uh, about um, kind of the quality of the sky at the zenith from the ground looking up. Have you guys had the DLC involved in any of these conversations, Brian? Because I, I see that um, uh, that the incentive, most of the incentive programs in Ontario, and Greg can speak to Minnesota, um, they incent the replacement of outdoor lighting without any um, reference to dark sky policy whatsoever. And so um, pure, it's purely an energy efficiency play. 
Right. Um, but it, it's a good point. We have not engaged them in this conversation with IDA yet. Uh, we have conversations with the DLC, and that's actually a very good point. Yeah, I think I think because right now you you know we're uh, we're in the middle of a you know aside from the pandemic situation, we were in the middle of replacing all of our outdoor lighting with no um, with no. Uh, it's very it would be very easy to say it has to be twenty seven hundred k or whatever, and it has to be dark sky compliant, or you don't get a rebate. I think that's a really effective way to number one, just create awareness about it. Cause all of a sudden all those people that are filling out rebate applications become aware of the fact that the right thing to do is low Kelvin temperature, dark sky compliant. On top of that, they're not going to get a rebate if they don't do it um, the, the correct way. Unfortunately, up until this time and continuing forward, all of the programs are based upon merely energy efficiency, the reduction of wattage. Yeah. And, and, and I think that one of the things that you brought up here is, uh, is uh, as we've talked about this, the social responsibility aspect of it. And if you're talking about utility companies who are giving these rebates, this would be one way of actually talking to them about that um, as part of what they're doing in these utility programs. Yes, they're energy driven. But, you know, the thing is, follow these principles. As I mentioned before, it's going to be more energy efficient because you're limiting the light to where you want it to be. Mm. And that's that would be a natural way to work with them on that. There's uh, certainly been some indication yeah. that, that, that the focus, certainly we applaud the focus on energy efficiency over the last sure. decade from a, mm -hmm. from a climate perspective. And, and clearly the, the scientists and engineers have done incredible work to, to create these more efficient uh, products. Um, but that single focus on that, I think, has had some unintended consequences. That's something mm -hmm. there's some indication <laughs> and that there hasn't been the actual consequence, there hasn't been the energy savings that could have been achieved because people have used their budgetary savings to light more of their city. So it's like it's it's any my experience is any time you focus on optimizing for one outcome, mm -hmm. uh, you have an imperfect outcome, and, and it'd be much better to look at a basket of metrics and say, look, we want to manage you know, creating a sustainable planet, a better planet for all of us. Means yes, we need to manage the energy part of the spectrum, but we also need to manage the wildlife part of it, and we also need to manage the social aspects of it and, and you know, in a more integrative manner. One of the uh, – you talk about integrative is a great point. Great, that's what uh, Dr. <clears throat> Veach calls the new lighting is going to be like an integrative lighting. Um, but when one of the things I've interviewed – but we've done over 500 podcasts now um, in different on different topics, not just lighting. Spoke to a lot of futurists and people like that. And one of the things, the themes that – you know, I, it's kind of occurred to me, and you mentioned this sort of indirectly, um, Ruskin, is that as we try to solve our problems, the, the solutions we come up with to solve our problems become the next problem. And it, it, it's interesting how that kind of goes, you know. So, oh, we need to solve this energy problem. Let's change our lights to LED. And then the 5000K starts introducing this other unintended problem that now needs to be solved. And in a sense, that's a driver of economic growth. Um, as we improve and continue to get better, like people say, oh, we're so stupid. Well, we can't know everything in front. We have, we're, we're, we're limited. So we, we have to learn these things as we go, but the faster we learn them and the quicker we react, which is why it's so important that the IES and, and the idea are coming together and creating simple principles that people can understand, not complicated documents that are difficult, simple principles. If we, the faster we recognize and, you know, take our heads out of the sand, so to speak, and say, you know what, gosh, 
a lot of that outdoor lighting we did from 2014 to 2019, 20 is not the right move. And unfortunately we have to replace it. Well, guess what? That's great news for lighting distributors, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I think think that's right. And that there's a a few things about that. And you brought up the issue of cost at the beginning Mm. and going for the lower cost item. Mm. Well, LEDs now are, as you know, are the cost of the chips themselves are pretty cheap right now, right? Sure. But putting the optical controls on them, hmm. if you want to, you know, sort of get down to how we can really get to the systems of the economics of it, um, I think that's where the focus would need to be in terms of controlling the, the lights to be aimed where they need to be, as we said in the five principles, right? And then also, um, we have several engineers that, that we work with that have been telling me that you know, when they did the designs with the high pressure sodiums, there was a lot of slop in there, right? Mm-hmm. Because you couldn't design it to the levels that we have in our standards. So when they replace it based on that same equivalent amount of light, they're still over lighting compared to our standards. And so we can do a lot of fine tuning to get these things done to where the light levels are right and controlled and everything. Um, and when you do that, it, it takes a little bit more thought and a little bit more engineering. And I say that it can be more economical because I believe that. But a lot of times without that thought process, people are just doing one for one replacements and not thinking enough about it. Mm-hmm. And that's what so, I think we really need to focus on is to get. Or not think thinking at all. It. Not thinking yeah, at all. Cases, actually. So you guys, you have the five principles. And to me, they're in order, as, as Ruskin kind of stated. First, you do this and you go here. You leave the toughest one, at least in my opinion, for the last. It is the color, and Mike has touched on it a couple times. And in previous shows, we've said what color is best for the customer. It's the one they want, right, Mike? (laughs) Whatever color they tell me they want to pay for, right? Right. Right. But now, what do you guys say? Is there a correct Kelvin temperature? You say limit the amount of blue-violet light. What's the right color? We've had this ongoing conversation. So like certainly from IDA's perspective, once you have made a decision that you need to install a light, we have they're, they are ordered, but there's not a, there's not a rank order in them. They clearly all work together. Um, and it's and it's by color being last doesn't mean it's the least important or by target being it doesn't mean it's the most important. They work holistically. And certainly my understanding like Low light levels and color work together. Spectrum and, and and how much light you're putting, you you manage both of those to the outcomes you want. No, clearly you point it down and you target it, and hopefully you put a control on it. You can so you can manage it in a day, and then it's like a recipe. And there's a great example from Tucson recently. I mean, Tucson um, has really been a leader in kind of dark sky mm-hmm. protection because of the astronomical industry. It's worth you know billion dollars a year or something here in Arizona. It's, it's like bringing a Super Bowl to Phoenix every couple of years. It, it's really important to the state that they they protect that. And, and when they went through the LED, when they um, put their new LEDs in place, they, they really set an objective. They, they wanted to reduce the short wavelength emissions um, as, as an outcome of this project. So they, they put that as one of the goals of the project as they went into it. And by managing the combination of the lumens that were put, being put out and the spectrum, spectral characteristics and putting some dimmers and controllers in, they're able to achieve that. And there's some early indication that actually Skyglow measured this, this distance dropped by 8%. And no one's noticed. I mean, that they, they're, they're dimming these things at night. And because they're different, because of the combination of those two values, they're not getting complaints. No one's noticing. No one's noticing really that there's been a difference. What, what Kelvin temp is it in Tucson? 
Uh, I believe it's mostly uh, 3,000. Okay. But I mean, the other point we'll make and hopefully get to talk about this is, is you know, we want to move beyond CCT and Kelvin as an as an appropriate measure of what we really care about, which is the spectral distribution of, of the light. Um, so that's another area that we're kind of aligned on. That we but that's a white tower thing. You got to be careful with the white tower diktats. Okay. So, for example, the the end user of a light bulb is still into cool white daylight and warm white, even though 25 years ago or 30 years ago, they started labeling lamps by their Kelvin temperature. So it takes time for these principles a lot longer than we think for them to distill down to the people that are selling light bulbs on an order desk or selling light fixtures on an order desk at. And so we have to be careful how quickly we switch and why Greg's asking for that Kelvin temperature is because he can turn to his guys and say, make sure everything's 3000 K man. I don't want to hear anything. He doesn't have to get into spectral distribution and nanometers and explaining all this stuff to them. He can just say, just order at 3000 K man. I don't want to hear about anything else other than 3000 K outside and make that recommendation to people. So we have to be careful how, like I love the simplicity of your five principles, but we also need like we're lighting professionals and we know that our employees are going to struggle with nanometers and spectral and yeah, yeah, no, that, that, there's no argument there. We, we, we understand and acknowledge we need to make it simple, but my understanding mm -hmm. and Brian should speak to this. You could have a 3000 K fixture that had more short wavelength emission, had sure. less short wavelength because you can, right. you can tune these things, right? right. The, the technology is incredible these days. So, a three, two, you could take two 3,000K fixtures and they would have very different outcomes when you put them out in the wild. And but both of them would be better than the 5,000K. Right? I mean, I don't know. You answer it, Brian. Well, from a, from yes. Skyco, well, more likely than not from a Skyco perspective, yes. Right. If, 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 unless, unless you're doing... If you're doing all of the other things right and you're pointing it down, you're using low light levels and you're controlling it, then yes, no. If, if you're putting it out in the wild with no, with no controls and no so all the lighting guys, all the lighting distributors listening to this went, oh, thank God. Okay, so three thousand k, yes, okay. So, like so all the guys, so you know, they just I said that. A, you know, recommendation for general purpose light for for most, and that's you know, warranted otherwise is three thousand k is appropriate these days, and you get the energy efficiencies, and you generally get low less short wavelength emissions, um, but it's it's not a perfect measure. So, so um, we have had a lot of discussions on this, and uh, you know the three thousand K is something that we can say is going to be give you much better quality all around than the old high pressure sodium. You think about mm -hmm. the legacy sure. fixtures that most people are used to; you are, certainly are improving it. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are there is research now that's starting to uh, look more closely at spectrum, uh, specifically in with drivers. And there may be an advantage uh, for drivers to have a slightly higher color temperature because it uh, allows them to see the target distance sooner and then that decreases the stopping distance. And so for certain applications in roadway, we think that there's a, an advantage to having a higher color temperature. And these are typically in the sort of commercial um, streets, not the residential streets, but in the more commercial streets where your speeds are a little bit higher and when you consider that 75% of pedestrian deaths by automobiles happen at night, that could make a difference. That could save some lives potentially. If you're going on a 40 mile an hour street, that's 20 foot difference in the stopping uh, spot. So there are some things that we look at and um, we have worked very hard uh, to look at this in terms of these 
how you do these trade-offs, right? If you do the cutoffs right and you do all these other things, and well, the 4,000K that actually adds that advantage, then would we say no? We might say that would be an application for 4,000 that might make sense. Uh, other applications, um, as an example, with the IDA and with the sports fields has gone up to 5,700. Mm. So because of those applications, which is why, I, you know, when I started this with our committees and so forth, the consensus decision on these things, um, they are really getting into this and learning more about it because of the different research avenues that are going on. And there's a lot to be learned. I know you guys know a lot about, um, you know, the light and human health and the melanopic response and all those sorts of things. Well, you know, we're finding out that that response has uh, as much more broad scale possible application in vision, not just in light and health. And so all these things are, you know, I don't want to overstate that they're moving targets, but as we learn about them, we might find that there are some advantages that we'll, we, we will be balancing with them. One of which is perhaps that because um, that also drives the brightness perception, you could, and we talked about the idea, you could might be able to use a higher color temperature, but then also lower the light level and have the same vision. At the end of the day, the blue content would be about the same. So why get stuck? And that's where I think Ruskin, you know, was talking about the balance. The spectrum and the light levels are things that we want to balance. But in general, you know, the tendency towards the 3000K is um, the direction things seem to be going, you know, just from the way of trying to limit the blue content for sky, for night pollution, light pollution at night. And um, that's a, a, probably a pretty good balance for most things, right? And the reason it's worded the way it is, is we want to limit the short of wavelengths because of the um, environmental concerns that are surrounding that right now as we know it. Um, and again, even that is evolving. I, the different forms of wildlife, as an example, some are more sensitized um, to a series of red wavelengths. There's a new thing that they're finding out about birds with the uh, magnetic pole response for how they um, how they migrate. Well, that's more in a red band than the blue band, but that's also been shown the blue band to affect bird migration and other things. A lot of moving targets here. Ooh. But in general, you know, this is where we land and this is where we agree. And the main and the most important thing is we agree to move forward together mm -hmm. on everything that we're doing because we have a common focus on these things, you know. And, and I think that having... Um, both of our organizations together as we drive forward and, and work on these things together is the most important aspect of what we're doing here. So Greg's signaling me that that's a good end to the show, but I have one more question. Okay. Uh, the color of fire is a warm color temperature. Okay. And I've been searching. So I read a lot of nonfiction books about anthropology and uh, social evolution and Darwinism and all this sort of stuff. And I'm searching for this. I want to know if humans have a relationship to that color of light at night and whether or not there's a comfort level with that color temperature, that warmer color temperature. And if we've evolved to prefer that at night and there's a calming effect and if there is a security effect of that color, which um, for some reason HPS became very, very popular as an outdoor light source when it didn't have to be. It could have been metal halide, right? Mm -hmm. So why would, do humans have some relationship to that lower Kelvin temperature at night? Do either of you know that? Have you seen anything about that in the past? And I've been searching for it for a long time. Well, um, 
go ahead and then I'll allow for my comments no, you, on it. You stop, Brian. Okay, so um, humans have evolved over this planet for the last 300,000 years. And about 150,000 years ago, they started harnessing fire. Uh, you would think that because we are a diurnal species that we would have a 12-hour sleep cycle on average, 12 on, 12 off. We don't. We have an eight-hour sleep cycle, and that's because of the harnessing of fire in general, it's believed. And the nighttime fire uh, has actually evolutionary been one of the things that traced back to the uh, innovation of language, and that's how language is developed. Mm, and so yes. there, there is something there, I think. Um, there's a couple of things I can send your way to look at on this. I'd love it. Uh, certain, certainly, you know, the, the aspect of how the sleep cycle works would tend to probably give you some indication of that, that the uh, bluer light makes you awake uh, at, and during the day. And then as you go to bed at night, that's, you know, the warmer color. You don't have too much blue in there and so forth. I don't know that it's proven yet, but there's some indications just from the way our evolution is. Uh, that there may be something to it. In a historical uh, construct in terms of what we're doing, electric lighting has been around for a hundred years for the most part, give or take, in our society. This is all new to us prior to that time. I mean, there was street lighting with gas lighting and so forth earlier on and so forth. But uh, the 24-hour society is new. Sure. And, and we are learning a lot about what we've done, both to our, our species as people, the planet, and the night sky as we've, um, you know, built this earth to become an electrified society. And so uh, it's a very interesting topic. I we don't have all the answers, but, I, but, you know, I wouldn't say that your thoughts on this are all that far-fetched at all. I would just, just add a couple of things, Michael. I mean, certainly from watching my kids when we go camping at night, there's, I mean, there's nothing like sitting around the fire together sure. and they calm mm -hmm. and they relax mm -hmm. and it's like, it, it's more mesmerizing than television, right? Sure, I mean, it it's alive and it's warm. And, and, and so there's really something in it for there. The, the other thing that I've learned in, in, in the last year of being here is in terms of our humans' relationship to light, we kind of messed ourselves on, up on both ends. We, we spend most of our days indoors mm -hmm. um, under dim light compared sure. to the bright full, full sun outside. And we spend most of our evening in, inside plugged into devices and screens. So we have just upended that 300,000 year relationship to light to put something novel in place. Mm -hmm. And we're a hundred years into this experiment. And, and as you, you talked about innovation earlier, thank goodness we are starting to learn more uh, about the benefits of sort of circadian lighting. I, I, I think we're going to learn a lot from, for instance, from what they're doing up on the, the International Space Station. And when, when we can get those $100,000 panels down here on Earth, we can start <laughs> tuning uh, the spectrums to actually match the natural cycle that we have grown up for 300,000 years with, then we'll all be in a bit more better place. Well, what I love is when I speak to the people at the IES, I, you know what, it's interesting because you guys actually, you're it's a very humble organization. And I mean that as a compliment. Like the, whenever you encounter one of these committees at the IES, whether it's TM, the color committee, I think it's TM20 or TM3, I can't remember all the, the different names, but you encounter people that are really searching for answers, mm -hmm. like genuinely searching for answers. And it's so refreshing because, you know, in time, especially in this time, these these uh, extraordinary times we live in right now, I, I question whether people are searching for answers. And 
like really looking for the answers to questions. And Brian, you brought up trade-offs. There's always trade-offs every time we make a decision on, on something like this, whether it's to lock down our society or whether it's to change our outdoor lighting, uh, whether it's Calvin temperatures at a crosswalk, they're all trade-offs. And so we have to be careful that we're, that we're aware of them at least at the very minimum that we're aware that, it, that these are trade-offs. And so Ruskin Hartley and Brian Liebel, thank you for being guests on the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you. It was our, it was our pleasure and honor. Thank you. Keystone. Keystone. Keystone Technologies. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com. KeystoneTech.com. Light made easy. You had me in a trance with that. I was just listening to that. Very, very good song you had. Light made easy now for exterior lighting. They're coming out with all the fixtures you need, floods, area lights, wall packs. And they're thinking of all the little things that not a lot of other people do. You know, they're going to give you color adjustability. They're going to give you the right mounting kits. They're going to, you know, their floods are going to have yoke mount, trunnion mount, and slip fitters. Cool. So you don't have to technical with me now, mount. man. Yeah. They're going to make it easy for you. You sell exterior lighting, Keystone's got it for you now. So be ready. Keystone. <laughs> Keystone. Uh-huh. <laughs> Go to KeystoneTech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com, baby. Keystone Tech. Of course, the National Association Innovative Lighting Distributors, man, where it all started, son. Got to go there. Nailed.org, baby. Hit it up. Join us. Get associated. We got some hot things coming out real soon for all the LS1 graduate peeps out there. We're going to put you back to work. That's right. You're going to get associated and get educated by Nailed. And finally, Brian Liebel and Ruskin Hartley. IES and IDA, respectively. That's the International Dark Sky Association. Nail just joined. Um, we haven't told Spencer and the rest of the board yet, but they're joining the IDA, and we're going to work with them on creating educational programs for all you listeners out there. And guess what? I'm going to take them too, and so is Greg. Of course. It's time for us distributors to start participating in this. The days of us having no fiduciary duty to the industry to not educate people that's over, son. I just slit the throat. We're going to start getting hot. We're going to expect more from each other. And we're going to start solving this problem incrementally. Incrementalism is the way to go. Let's do it. Do it right. Thanks for listening. Written on the rectory wall, there's a sign there for all. You are lost, Lord is there to find you.